how did the Jewish people become a nation starting out with just Abraham? And by the way, did Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph have any say in being the founding fathers? Or were they simply predestined to do all that they did? And what about us? What is God in control of and what are we responsible for? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pren and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to answer those questions and many more in our podcast entitled From a Person to a People, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now keep in mind on this lesson that there is so much more going on here than is first apparent. I'm not going to just be retelling you Bible stories that you may have heard growing up about Joseph and his coat of many colors and Jacob and the angels going up and down on the ladder to heaven and the family of Jacob moving to Egypt. But these these stories are all important and we will go over them in giving you an overview of what's going on. But if you really pay attention and in some ways sort of step back and view them as a whole. In the stories of these people are some incredibly significant lessons on the interplay of the sovereignty of God, where he's totally in control of everything, and human free will, where we're free to make choices. In other words, we might ask, how does God being in charge fit in with the choices that we make? Now, are our choices really free choices, or are is every action that we do predetermined. And that's what I want you to kind of look for as I tell the various stories. Let's now review where we we've come so far. In the first part of Genesis we have four major events. We have the creation, we have the fall of man, we have the flood, and we have the division of the people at the Tower of Babel. The second part of Genesis now focuses on people, and here we have four major people. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, it's important to remember that even though God is focusing on Israel now, on it becoming a nation, it does not mean that he is forgetting the rest of humanity. Throughout the Old Testament, as we talked about before, there are stories of people who are not part of Israel who God tells their story. For example, the book of Job, and we find out about uh, Jonah being sent to Nineveh, and a number of stories like this. But the primary focus is on Israel. Romans 1 also reiterates that everybody innately knows about God and all people are accountable to him. But to tell God's story clearly to the rest of the world, he wanted to focus on a certain group of people to do that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, the story of those people actually has two plot lines. I want you to picture this in your mind. First of all, a straight line. That's what I call line number one. That's God's plan. Ultimately, salvation for all people of the earth. That's what this whole story is moving towards. But then there's a second line going on at the same time. And I want you to picture a really squiggly, squiggly, squiggly line that goes kind of up and down and all over the place and sometimes double back and sometimes goes straight ahead. Think of that as the human lives that carried out this plan. Well, the big question is, how do they work together? That's that whole question of the sovereignty of God and the free will of humans. Well, the way that one 
illustration that has really helped me. This isn't original with me. I don't actually know who first said it because I've heard it repeated a number of times. But think of it this way. Sure, an ocean liner, a big ocean liner. The captain is in charge. It's his ship. His word is law. He has decided on the direction. He has a goal. He knows where the ship is going to when it will arrive home. Now, within that ship, the passengers are really given quite a bit of freedom. Now, the individual passengers, they don't decide the ultimate destination of the ship. They sign on for it, but on that ship, they do have quite a bit of freedom. Now, if there's a crew, they're assigned certain tasks. If they don't do them, things don't go well. But if it's a wonderful crew and they're doing their job, things will go really well. Also, each passenger is responsible for his or her actions, his or her attitude. And based on that, that will determine what they get out of the trip, whether they think they're having a wonderful trip or if they just complain about every little thing. Now, again, the passengers cannot change the destination of the ship, but their actions will greatly affect their experience on the journey. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but I think it's it's a pretty good one where we are on this ship, you might call it cruise ship Earth, and God has a plan worked out for the salvation of the world. And when we got on that ship, so to speak, God allows us a lot of freedom on the ship, but he's in charge of it. Now, in the Old Testament, you might carry the analogy a little bit more, and I hope I'm not stretching it too much, but he chose what you would call maybe a crew on the ship. And I would say that that would be Israel in the Old Testament and perhaps the church in the New Testament. And they have three major tasks. Number one, they're entrusted with God's word. This was spoken by the prophets, verified by signs and prophecies that came true. Then next, they were to model his worship. We will see in the next sections in Exodus through Deuteronomy exactly how they modeled that to the, their own people and then to anyone else in the world who, who wanted to see how God should be worshipped. Then they're to be his witnesses. When they followed him, they were blessed. When they failed, they were disciplined. God very clearly said that you are my people. You're supposed to act in a certain way. And if you don't, this is what will happen. So through all of these experiences, through all of the things that happened, he said the earth would be blessed ultimately, of course, in the coming of Jesus. That was his plan, and his chosen people didn't always, and for us in the church today, we don't always do that job. We don't always share God's plan with the rest of the people on cruise ship earth, if you will. But that doesn't change God's calling. And now let's look back at the Old Testament and see how the children of Israel came to be as a nation that was to show God's plan to the world. Well, let's look for back for a few minutes on where the story takes place. Again, remember our Bible has maps because things happen in a real place. Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees. He went up to Haran and stayed there until his father died. Then he goes down into the land of Canaan. The people, he and some of his descendants make periodic trips to Egypt, which is just 
right next to them. And then finally, under Joseph, they will be there for 400 and some years. That's the area that it all takes place in. Now let's look at the lives of the patriarchs. The founding fathers of the Jewish nation, the patriarchs as they're referred to in the Bible again and again, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those were the three initial generations of the Jewish people. I've also included Joseph in our lesson because he's responsible for really saving the nation from starvation during Jacob's, when uh, Jacob's family had grown to a pretty large size. And also, too, we'll talk about some of the other benefits of them moving to Egypt a little bit later. Now, just to briefly review Abraham's life, he trusted God to leave her the Chaldees, move to Canaan, he trusted God for his son, even though he and Sarah were past the age of childbearing. He passed God's test to sacrifice Isaac. The next major thing that happens in the biblical account is Sarah died. Abraham buys the cave of Machpelah for a burial place, and that cave and the uh, where they're buried is still with us today. When you see pictures of it, though, it's this huge, huge building. They have built over it and built over it and built over it, but we still know where that is. Well, life goes on, and Abraham actually remarries. He marries a woman named Keturah. He has other sons, but he just gives them gifts and sends them away, primarily to lands to the south and east of Canaan. Now, kind of one interesting little tidbit that I'll just throw in here was what happens to one of the sons named Midian. Now, he moves south, and when Moses fled from Egypt, he settles in Midian, and there he meets his wife, who he married, and his father-in-law's name was Jethro, or in some translations, it's Ruel, which means a friend of God. Now, he was called a priest of Midian, and he was also described as a Kenite, which is sort of a sub-tribe of the larger group. And we know we don't know exactly how strong his faith was, but after the children of Israel came out of Egypt, Jethro meets Moses, and he praises God, and he says, Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. And it says that he brought a burnt offering and made sacrifices to God. Now he is the one too, many stories are told about this in management classes and things like that, where Jethro is the one who counsels Moses to train other leaders. He sees that he's answering all of the people's questions by himself and he says you shouldn't do that, you'll wear out, so you train these leaders and they will be able to speak for you. His son, Hobab, serves as a guide through the wilderness. Now the history of the Midianites takes a couple of directions after this. A lar the larger group of the Midianites decides to unite with the Moabites, and later on they turn on Israel and they hire Balaam to curse them. Well, God does not answer his curse and he blesses them instead, but they become very strong enemies after this. Later they oppressed Israel, and during the time of the judgment, the Midianites are the ones that Gideon, remember the fleece and all that, that he defeated. Now, a smaller portion, though, of the people, the Kenites were always friends with Israel. Again, during the time of the judgment of the judges, excuse me, when Deborah was a judge, Barak, her general, 
defeated an army that was fighting against Israel, and the general of that army, Sisera, fled to the tent of Jael, who was a Kenite. Now, she knew that they were enemies of Israel, and she gave him some milk to drink, and he went to sleep, and then she killed him, and let uh, the Israelites know, and that was considered a great victory. Later on in biblical history, when God told Saul to destroy the Amalekites because of their sinfulness, The Kenites lived near them, but God said, tell them to move away. Don't touch them. Don't destroy them. They are friends. They did that, and they lived. So an application here is pay attention to some of the little things in the Bible. It's really interesting the things that you learn about how God takes care of people and the way he works with people and nations in many ways that we might miss if we aren't really paying attention. Now, moving back again to the main story, Abraham knew that Isaac was the son of promise. He, God had said to him, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. So the next thing Abraham needs to do is he needs to get a wife for Isaac. And so he sends his servant to get a wife for him from the family back in Haran. He doesn't want him to marry any of the pagan Canaanite women in the area. The servant asks for God's help. God helps him. Rebecca appears as soon as he arrives and offers to water his camels. And he watches her. He sees how industrious she is. She's a very beautiful woman. He introduces himself to her. She takes him home to her family. They see all of the wealth and riches that he has. He tells them about his master Abraham. And he says, I would like for Rebecca to come back and be my master's son's wife. And she says that she will do that. And so they return and she becomes Isaac's wife. And it says that he loved her. One little application here before we go on that one commentator had to say that I thought was really a good one. And that is always do the very best you can even on little jobs because you never know who might be watching or what it might lead to. Rebecca when she decided to water the camels of a man who was probably very tired and weary from his journey and she didn't know who he was. She didn't know that he would be anything to her. She just did it. He watched that and because of her faithfulness perhaps she becomes a key person in God's story of redemption. Now the story moves on to Isaac. Now, he is one of the patriarchs that we really don't know very much about. He was married when he was 40, but for 20 years, he and Rebecca did not have any children. And to their credit, they did not attempt the solution of Hagar of trying to have a maid have children for them. It says that Isaac prayed, and he prayed for a long time, really a good example of faithfulness in prayer, that his wife would have a child. Finally, she becomes pregnant, and it says, that the babies jostled each other in her womb and she said to God she says why is this happening and he said two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be divided the one will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger now keep in mind when God says something he does not change his mind they knew before the children were born that God said that the older would serve the younger. They knew that God had decided that the younger one is the one 
who would be the one that the, that God would honor, that he would use for his plan. But they didn't listen. And really, all kinds of problems happened because of this. Now, before we get to the next part of the story, let's look for a minute at the two sons. Esau, the actually older son, said he had lots of red hair. He loved the outdoors. He loved hunting. He was his father's favorite. Jacob was obviously his mother's favorite. He liked to stay home. He liked to cook. Esau one day comes home hungry, and he sells his birthright for some stew. And it says that Esau despised his birthright. He just says, I'm starving. Give it to me. And Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright. And Esau says, what good will it do me if I'm dead? And so he sells his birthright. He despises his birthright. Now, the application on this is Esau is really an example of a very bad decision. And sadly, also an example that some things cannot be undone. In Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now the birthright in those times was a very big deal. You obtained a double inheritance. You were in charge of your entire family. You were the one that carried on the family line. And he just threw it away. Now forgiveness is always possible, but some decisions have consequences that cannot be undone even if people repent. Something that will happen later is when the children of Israel refused to go into the promised land even though God said he was giving it to them and that their victory was assured. They said no they wouldn't do it and then God said well you're going to have to wander in the desert for 40 years and then they said do over, (laughs) you know we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it and God said no. You know, the decision has been made. You will wander for 40 years. He said, I will forgive you, but still, this is what is going to happen. Now, one thing, I don't want to leave you really depressed on this one example. I thought a great example, a great encouragement to us not to give up when various hungers sort of attack us, whether it's something we want to eat or whether it's just all kinds of things in life where we we really, really want something. A great example, instead of Esau, of course, is Jesus. During his temptation, it said, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the application here is don't focus on your hunger, whatever it is, but on how God's word can be applied to your situation. And of course, we've got to know God's word so that we can apply it. Now, with Isaac and God's covenant, his father had told him, about the covenant and that through him through the family line that all families of the earth would be blessed but he did not actually get to hear it from God personally for a very long time 
And the promise didn't come to him until the time of testing. Let me read this to you out of Genesis 26. It said, Now there was a famine in the land, besides a former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Isaac listened. He believed God. He obeyed. He stayed in the land. He did not go down into Egypt. However, he totally messes up because then he tells King Abimelech that Rebekah's his sister. She was very beautiful. The man in that area apparently thought she was wonderful. And so Isaac falls into the same sin as his father. Oh, she's my sister. She's my sister. But in many ways, it was even worse when he did it, because with Abraham, Sarah was his half-sister. But that wasn't the case with Rebekah. That was just completely sin. And God is gracious. He gets him out of that situation. And Isaac goes on to live a relatively uneventful life. He digs wells. They get filled up. He digs another well. It gets filled up. He was a very passive man. He was a very peaceful man. This happens several times until he finally makes peace with some of the people in the area. Now, his older son Esau marries two pagan women, and it does not go well. The Bible says that they were a source of grief to their parents. Now, the time is coming in Isaac's life. He thinks he's going to die. He doesn't. He lives quite a long time after this, but he thinks he's going to die. So he says to Esau, now is the time for me to give you the patriarchal blessing. And so I want you to go make some good stew for me like you do this with the wild game, and then I will bless you. Well, Rebecca hears it, and she doesn't want Esau to have the blessing. She wants Jacob to have the blessing. So she plots this thing where she will sort of disguise him, and he will go into his father, who can hardly see anymore, and pretend to be Esau. Isaac falls for it, and he gives this blessing to Jacob. He says, May nations serve you, and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Esau comes back in shortly after this, realizes that the blessing has been stolen, and he is furiously angry, and he vows to kill his brother. Their mother hears about it, and so she says to Isaac, she says, you know, these women that Esau's married are just driving me crazy. We just can't let Jacob do this. So let's send him to my brother Laban, and let's have him get a wife from there. Isaac agrees, and she sends her son off. Now, before we talk about what happened to him, let me just tell you a little bit of the story, a little side story again. But it's rather interesting about Esau because he does have a rather long and interesting history in the Bible after this. Not a particularly positive one, but Isaac then gives him a blessing. He says, oh, my father, don't you have something left for me? And Isaac says, your dwelling will be away from the earth's riches. 
away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Now that seems like kind of an odd blessing, and I'm going to talk a little bit later about the real meaning of blessings and curses in the Bible, particularly on the blessings part. This is is pretty much what happened. Now, the history of Edom or Esau, apparently they did reconcile when Jacob returns to Canaan, which we'll pick up that part of the story a little bit later. But Esau then moves south, and he becomes the nation of Edom, the Edomites, and they always have bad relations with Israel. At the time of the Exodus, they would not let them cross through their land to get to where they were going. They just said no. They turned them away. They were defeated by David and Saul, but then they rebelled. They were judged for their retaliation against Israel. We're not sure of the exact date, but the book of Obadiah speaks directly to the Edomites. And what happened is uh, Israel was being punished for its sins by God. And during this time, they were being taken captive. And Edom, instead of helping the prisoners or being kind to them, they just piled it on. And Obadiah 1.12 says, You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. Deliverers will grow up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The bottom line on this is, and the application, is never gloat over God's judgment of others. When God judges someone, that's their business. Don't ever gloat. That is never the thing to do, no matter how much you might dislike them. But God did judge Edom very strongly, and they basically faded away as a people. Back to Jacob. He flees to his uncle. He stops on the way, and he has a very unusual dream. This is of the angels ascending and descending from heaven. This is the Jacob's Ladder of the Spiritual Song. Now God appears and he gives him the covenant blessing. He promises him that he will have the land, that all people will be blessed through him, and he also promises that he will watch over him on his journey and that he will bring him back to the land. He goes to Laban. He falls in love with his daughter Rachel. Now Laban says you have to work for her for seven years. He does that. He when the wedding night comes though, when he wakes up the next morning, lo and behold, he's been given Leah, not Rachel. Leah was the older sister. After a week of marriage festivities though, he is given Rachel, but he has to work for her another fourteen years. Now this is not the happiest family setup, and it gets even more interesting in that Leah has four sons, Rachel is barren. She can't have children apparently. So Rachel gives Jacob her maidservant, Bilhah, and Bilhah can have children for her, just like Hagar did for Sarah. When this happens, Leah says, Well, I can play that game too and she gives Jacob Zilpah and Jacob has children with her. Finally Rachel does get pregnant and she gives birth to Joseph. Now this is not a tremendously happy family. There are obviously a lot of fighting, a lot of different things going on but they they somehow hold it together and then Jacob decides it's time to go back to Canaan. And so he leaves without telling Laban, which was not a really good idea. Laban chases him down 
and confronts him and he says well I, I didn't think you'd let me leave and finally the two of them separate and this is the instance of one of the most misinterpreted benedictions in the Bible it's the mitzpah blessing it's where it says or well that's what we call it but it really wasn't at all that's where they say to each other now may the Lord watch between you and me while we're absent one from another and basically what they're saying is just don't cross me with my back turned and so please don't ever use that again that's that's completely out of context but before he gets back to Canaan he hears that his brother is coming and he's really afraid and he sends his his wives and his children ahead and it says that night he wrestled with God and we don't know all the details from it but after this night of wrestling the angel of the Lord touches him and says you are now going to be given a new name Israel Prince of God he meets his brother Esau they have a very cordial meeting but then they go their separate ways Jacob settles in the land and Joseph is obviously his favorite son this is where in the old Bible stories he gets the coat of many colors which was a sign that he was the favored one of his father now Joseph had a dream and he he dreamed that all of his family was bowing down to him obviously he had a special calling from God but instead of reacting with humility he brags about it he goes guess what I dreamed guess what you're all going to do and he was a apparently pretty obnoxious about it and his brothers hated him and so when they had the chance when their father wasn't around they sell him to the Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt and sell him as a slave he was probably 16 to 17 years old when he was sold into Egypt first he works at a man named Potiphar's house and he has really grown up a lot apparently because he takes charge he does a good job he is very well favored he's doing really well and then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him he says no he flees he's accused of seduction anyway and thrown into prison and while he is in prison he really changes we see after a number of years a man who has a very very deep faith and then the Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer are thrown in into prison he interprets dreams for them exactly what he says comes true but he has to wait two more years until he is brought before Pharaoh who has a dream and he says God is the one who reveals dreams and he tells Pharaoh there's going to be seven years of abundance in the land and then seven years of famine and he said you should store up the grain during the times of abundance so you'll have it when the famine comes and Pharaoh says who can do this better than you if you know this is going to happen I'm putting you in charge so Joseph now at this time becomes the second in command ruler of Egypt and he is the one who oversees the storage of the grain and then the giving it out then the giving out of it later his brothers come to him because they are starving in the land of Canaan he recognizes them they don't recognize him he puts them through some really unkind it appears on the surface tests but many commentators have said that he was doing this 
for them to remember how wrong it had been when they had sold him into slavery. And they do. They immediately, when these terrible things happen, they say, this is because we sold our brother Joseph. These horrible things are happening. We shouldn't have done this. And so they face the fact of what they did in in the past was wrong. Joseph finally reveals himself to them and says, I am Joseph. I am your brother. You thought you were doing a terrible thing, but I've been sent here to save lives. Now I want you to bring my father here. I'm going to have you settle in the land of Egypt because we have many more years of famine. They at first don't believe him. Finally, they recognize him. They go back and tell their father, who is absolutely thrilled. He thought his son was dead. Now he knows he's alive, and he goes to Egypt. Now, you might ask, why is it it's okay to go to Egypt now when it wasn't before? Well, God had actually told Abraham that for 400 years his descendants would be strangers in a country not their own, that they would be enslaved and mistreated. This was prophesied in Genesis 15:13. When they left Canaan to go to Egypt, they were 66 people. In the time that they were there for 400 years, they became around 3 million. Now, why did God do this? Many have said, and I I think this is true, that God did this to isolate them. Israel always had a problem with wanting to intermarry with pagan people to serve other gods. They were tempted by these things, just like all of us are in the world that we're in. But God wanted them isolated. And the Egyptians could not stand shepherds. They didn't want to have anything to do with these people. So they put them in a separate place. They did not intermarry with them. They did not serve Egyptian gods. And they grew as a strong people with their own sense of identity and who they were before God in a completely isolated and in many ways protected area, even though it didn't seem like a really positive thing to do, perhaps at the time. And it got a lot harder when they became slaves instead of welcome guests before they were released. And we'll, of course, hear that story when we talk about the Exodus. The brothers, of course, after their father dies, are afraid that Joseph is really going to take out his frustrations on them and pay them back for the sins that they've done. But when they meet him, he says, No, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. We could, of course, do many lessons on the life of Joseph and how through suffering he became a very godly man, how he did not hold grudges, how God used him to save others, even at great personal cost to himself. But before we leave this story, actually going back a little bit before Jacob's death, I want to take a few minutes to look at Jacob's blessings of his sons because this gives us a a really different idea of what Old Testament blessings are all about. And when he calls in his sons just before he dies, he says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which will befall you in the last days. And he goes through this list then of what will happen to his sons. This is not what we would consider blessings. I'm going to read you uh, little statements from them, what these actually were. It's It was prophecies of what would happen to them. So I'll read you a little statement and then 
tell you what commentators say actually happened. Reuben, unstable as water, you will not excel. And history shows that no one in poster in the posterity of Reuben ever was a judge, a prophet, a ruler, nothing really to speak of from his tribe. Then he goes on to talk about Simeon and Levi are instruments of cruelty. I will scatter them in Israel. And that's what happened. Simeon was a fairly large tribe when they went uh, when they when they first started out, but they ended up being a very small tribe. They were scattered throughout Judah. Now Levi, on the other hand, during the wandering in the wilderness, they were very faithful to different trials that happened, and they became the tribe of priests. But they were also scattered throughout the land. They didn't have any land of their own. God was their inheritance. Then it goes on to say, Dan shall judge his people. And one of the most famous judges in the book of Judges is Samson. He was from the tribe of Dan. It talks about Benjamin as a ravenous wolf. And this tribe was known for its fierceness throughout history. Ehud was a very powerful judge during the time of Judges. Saul, the first king of Israel, was from Benjamin. And the apostle Paul was also from Benjamin. Now, very interesting, of course, is when he gets to Judah. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And he says quite a few other things, but in summary, this is taken as the passage that foretells the birth of the Messiah, who will come through the tribe of Judah. Judah was not the firstborn, but he is the one who is always listed in the genealogies of Jesus. Now, I was thinking as this rather different way of viewing what we'd call what the Bible calls blessings, but where they're really more prophecies, it reminded me of the Beatitudes. And think about this for a minute. I've, I've always kind of wondered about the Beatitudes. I've always kind of had a problem with them because it just doesn't seem like they're true right now. Uh, for example, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, I don't see too many meek people in places of power. It That just really doesn't seem like that happens. But when you look at it in the light of Old Testament prophecy, and remember Jesus was speaking as an Old Testament rabbi, they make so much more sense because just as the blessings of the patriarchs came true for their descendants, so too we can really trust in the coming reality in our lives that the Beatitudes tell us. Now, now think about this for just a minute where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now you see, we can have hope in these blessings, not because they're going to be fulfilled tomorrow, but because they will come. Just like in the Old Testament, 
where Jacob could say these things, called them blessings, about his sons, and they happened. So too, when we read the Beatitudes, that's what God has planned for us. Those are the blessings for us if we live according to the ways that he describes in them. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became a nation. Sometimes they did great things, sometimes they did bad things. They were tested, they were blessed, they suffered, they rejoiced. Sometimes their actions caused these things. Sometimes God just gave them these situations. The way Hebrews 11.13 puts it, it says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, and they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Not any of them could see the whole plan, but they trusted God, and His will was accomplished. And I hope that their story, in some ways, illustrates what I was talking about earlier, this sort of balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. The patriarchs are men we honor, but God is the captain of the ship, and He's the true hero of this story, and every story in our lives and in theirs. The journey might toss us around a little bit, the waves may terrify us, but our captain can be trusted, and we will make it safely home. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and the other materials that I have on Bible805.com, www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.